0: All people are created in the image of God. Every human being, in a general sense, is God's child, animated by the breath of God. Our nation's declaration of independence even inserts as a self-evident truth that all men are created equal. And so we affirm the dignity and the worth of every human soul on equal ground with every other human soul. But as Christians, we move past this to consider as well the vertical. We also affirm that God rules sovereignly from heaven's throne as our Creator, our Lawgiver, our Judge and our Savior, and that His will is supreme and absolute. So the Lord rules over people of equal worth, understanding, of course, there's a sense of unique relationship to those who are His own through faith. But thinking generally, He rules over all individuals equally, and they on equal standing before Him, But he also rules providentially through those people by establishing various structures of authority. There is government and citizen. There are husbands and wives. Parents and children. Teachers and students. Pastors and churches. Employers and employees. And on it goes innumerable levels of relationship under God's sovereign rule of equal partners as the image of God. Now in some cultures the impulse is toward the exercise of authority. Many times even at the expense of equality where we have dictatorships and we have tyrants that rule and emphasize this necessity of order and structure and control at the cost of the individual. We're not in that culture, if you're awake at all. In our culture, in our Western culture, the impulse is toward equality at the expense of authority many times. Our impulse is egalitarian. If you're not familiar with that word, it's an important word for us to grasp, even to understand ourselves and our setting. In the kind of evangelical ghetto, egalitarian has a very limited sense, and we often hear of it in terms of the roles of men and women in the church, that they are to be identical, equal, egalitarian. That's a position that many would take. But I'm using egalitarian far more broadly here for our purposes today. Think of it, in government and politics, the egalitarian impulse leads us to question authority. To expose abuses of power. To remove tyrants. To give voice to the oppressed. In economics, the egalitarian impulse calls for higher taxes on the wealthy higher minimum wages, tax incentives benefiting minorities, inexpensive or free housing, equal pay, these types of conversations. In academics and athletics, the egalitarian impulse calls for unequal test standards, equal numbers of athletic programs for men and women, and quotas for women and minorities in positions of leadership. The impulse is egalitarian, to create equality. In gender and family politics and the like, the egalitarian impulse privileges homosexuals. It promotes abortion and no-fault divorce. It calls for the deconstruction of the patriarchal oppression of women. And it denies parental authority all the way up unto the United Nations and conversations between countries. Now, Don't read anything into what I'm saying other than just by way of observation. Not all of these egalitarian concerns are wrong. I would certainly argue not all of them are right. And not all that are wrong are equally wrong. There are some of these matters that I've mentioned, some of this egalitarian bent and focus in our culture, some of it's just politics, it's not right or wrong necessarily, there might be wisdom to one way or the other, but it's it's fair debate between people as they work these matters out. There's other such matters, as I've talked through some of these examples, that are direct attack against the authority of God we have to learn to discern and be willing to balance and consider and not just put ourselves in one orientation. But I mean here simply to illustrate how pervasively the egalitarian impulse runs through our culture. It does not seem to run nearly as deeply in God's mind. God is no supporter of tyrants. God does not appreciate those who abuse power. But particularly in our Western setting, we need to also see the other angle. And that is that there is not an egalitarian impulse in God that runs as deeply as it may in our culture. So what I mean is that God's word orders human relationships to flourish by upholding structures of authority and calling people to submit to God-ordained leadership. This is how God gets things done in this waking world through His image bearers. So unlike us, God is not allergic to boundaries and hierarchy and authority and order and regulation or leadership. We are, in the end, moving toward A benevolent king who will rule the earth with absolute authority. Now we aren't seeing any of that in our world. We can't see any of that in our world now. But we want to tap into how God thinks, how He orders His world, how we relate to Him Not simply respond to the culture around, whether in opposition or in agreement, but come to understand the mind of our God and how He works in and through His people. And to this end, each of us must face squarely the temptation to dismiss God's will and attack the structures of authority that He places around us for our good. We're all here as rebels on some level. We have a history of it. You could fill out your history, I could fill out mine. But this idea that God orchestrating individuals who are equal in the image of God, but orchestrating it such that there is direction and structure and leadership and authority is hard for us to accept at times. We struggle against it. Let's come back to the Israelites and their journey in the wilderness following their failure to trust God and enter into the promised land. He had called them to this. He had provided for them. He would direct them into this wonderful place that He had secured for them over several hundred years. But they had rejected Him. They had not trusted Him. And we witness now again as they are in the wilderness, journeying around and waiting for this 40-year period to end, we don't know where this event takes place in that time, but somewhere in that stretch we, have, we see an ugly insurrection against a hierarchical authority structure that God set in place for the protection of His holiness and for the blessing of His people. We come to chapter 16 then in verse 1 where we find the rebels rise up against God's chosen leaders. Here it is again. We've seen it before, certainly in chapter 12 and in other ways. We see it again here in chapter 16, where we read, verse 1, that Korah, the son of Izhar, son of Kohath, son of Levi, and Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and on the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men, and they rose up before Moses... With a number of the people of Israel, 250 chiefs of the congregation, chosen from the assembly, well-known men. And they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, You have gone too far, for all the congregation are holy. Every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourself above the assembly of the Lord? Let's consider for a moment, who are these people? Korah is a Kohathite, a priest of the tribe of Levi. He would have been encamped on the south side of the tabernacle at the center of the people of God as they are encamped here. And looking on this graphic, we see the Kohathites circled around the tabernacle, in a sense protecting it from the unholiness of the people. They had a very decided responsibility. And that that responsibility was to carry the vessels and the furniture of the tabernacle as the nation moved. This was a high calling. They were not to go into the tabernacle, that was not their calling as Levites, but they were to take that furniture and take those vessels as they were covered and to carry them with the people of God. They are holding the most holy pieces of God's people. It's a high calling, an important place. But according to chapter 4, positioned here on this south side in the encampment, with this high calling, there is also right by them. Notice the second circle here at the bottom right on the south side, the camp of the Reubenites. Now, don't these blocks, you know, they're not GPS drawn, right? They're just the idea there. But probably where the Kohathites are living and where the Reubenites are living, they're right next to each other, they're neighbors on the south side here. And we have Dathan and Abiram and On. He disappears from the text for reasons we don't know. But these all three are Reubenite leaders. Along with 250 chiefs, representatives of, we would assume, other tribes. But the Kohathites and the Reubenites are talking with each other. And there's some history that goes into all of that. But they look at their position in the nation and they say, we're not happy. And they come... To Moses and Aaron in verse 3, and they say, You have gone too far. I mean, this is, this is a pretty intimidating setting. You have 250 leaders of the nation. You have representatives of the Kohathites coming to you and saying, We oppose your leadership. You've gone too far. And you notice the egalitarian argument. What is their rationale? Verse 3. All the congregation are holy. Every one of them. Why do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? They get religious with Moses, and they speak of the whole nation as holy. By holy here, we think pure, but primarily here in the sense of distinctive, set apart, unique. And is this not true? Exodus chapter 19 and verse 6 says this very thing. They are a holy people, a holy nation, set apart unto God. All the people. So their main premise is accurate. The people are all holy. There's an egalitarian argument here that is accurate, but the conclusion is flawed. They rightly conclude that Moses and Aaron were in a position of authority and leadership. They wrongly conclude at the end of verse three that the motivation is pride and self promotion. You love yourselves. You are using people. You are abusing power. You've gone far enough. This has got to end. You're not unique. We are they rightly conclude that Israel was a holy nation. But they failed to admit that Moses and Aaron were sovereignly chosen by God for this position. We don't have time to read Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers up to this place to make, to make that point. But it is very clear that God has placed them in this position. They've been dedicated to this position. And so what is the motivation here for these who oppose moses and aaron i think moses detects it very well in verse 10 at the end of verse 10 he says and would you seek the priesthood so ironically these opponents charge moses and aaron with precisely the sins that fill their own hearts and this is rather common it's common to us as we deal with these same types of issues When a teenager is living a lie, is living it as a hypocrite, you can virtually count on him charging his parents with hypocrisy. When a husband does a poor job of leading his home, he may well be the first to stand in line to criticize a pastor for not leading the church. When a Christian man struggles to submit his will to God, he is all the more likely to criticize his wife for failing to submit to Him. A married woman with romantic lust for a single man may be the first to charge another woman with flirtation when she sees them talking. You get the idea. It's so often what's echoing around in our own heart that we then impose upon others. You're in a position of leadership. You're in a position of authority. We are jealous. And we think that you then are motivated by pride and self-promotion. That's what's happening here, and it happens all the time. They have forgotten what pure motives and a clean heart feels like, and they cannot imagine that Moses and Aaron have one. And so they charge them with abuse of power. At verse 4, we move then secondly. Moses calls the Reubenites he calls out the Reubenites that should be verse 12 or, or verse 4 let's begin there he opposes Moses opposes first of all Korah in verse 4 when the assembly of the Lord when Moses heard I'm sorry verse 4 when Moses heard it he fell on his face And he said to Korah and all his company, In the morning the Lord will show you who is his and who is holy and will bring him near to him. The one whom he chooses, he will bring near to him. Do this then. Take censers, Korah and all his company, put fire in them and put incense on them before the Lord and tomorrow. And the man whom the Lord chooses... Shall be the holy one. You have gone too far, sons of Levi. The censer, looking something like this, uh, we're not sure precisely what they look like. Their design, but there would be coals in there, and then incense put on top of that, and there would be a, this this smell, and they would be used in the tabernacle area, as is pictured here. Again, just uh, just a guesswork a bit at how this would have worked, but standing before. That inner sanctum, the Holy of Holies, standing before that, this incense burning and creating this smell, it was one of the most holy acts of the priesthood. This was not a task for the Levites. We read in Numbers 4, the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, let not the tribe of the clans of the Kohathites be destroyed from among the Levites, but deal thus with them, that they may live and not die when they come near to the most holy things. Aaron and his sons, here's the the Aaronic element of the Levitical tribe, Aaron and his sons shall go in and appoint them each to his task and to his burden, but they shall not go in to look on the holy things, even for a moment, lest they die. So Moses, in a right sense, I think here, incites them to take on what they are not to look at, what they're not to touch, other than after it has been covered and they carry it with the nation moving. They're not to look on these things yet Moses says, then take a censer, and let's see what happens. Also in Numbers 18, And with you bring your brothers also, the tribe of Levi, the tribe of your father, that they may join you and minister to you, while you and your sons with you are before the tent of the testimony. This this message to Aaron. The Levites will join you this way. They shall keep guard over you and over the whole tent, but shall not come near to the vessels of the sanctuary or to the altar, lest they and you die. Now, this, is of course, coming later in the book of Numbers, but expressing God's will, and as was expressed earlier, and as these individuals fully know. Verse 8 Moses said to Korah, Hear now, you sons of Levi, is it too small a thing for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel? Separated in a good sense, given a unique responsibility, to bring you near to Himself and to do service in the tabernacle of the Lord and to stand before the congregation to minister to them. Is this not a unique calling? Numbers 8: Thus you shall separate the Levites from among the people of Israel, and the Levites shall be mine. A unique calling. And Numbers 18, I have taken your brothers the Levites from among the people of Israel. They are a gift to you, given to the Lord to do the service of the tent of meeting. So there's a unique calling that they have, and Moses draws attention to this. You are a gift to Israel. God has set you apart for this unique privilege of helping His people enter into My presence with safety. But it wasn't enough for them. Verse 10, And that He has brought you near Him, and all your brothers, the sons of Levi, with you, and would you seek the priesthood also? It's not enough to be set aside as Levites. You want to be Aaronic Levites. Therefore, verse 11, It is against the Lord that you and all your company have gathered together. What is Aaron that you grumble against him? You're not grumbling against Aaron the priest. You're grumbling against God. All they could see was the egalitarian vision. It's not fair. We should be included in. And Moses says, you've got to recognize there's a God in heaven who rules. It's him that you're rebelling against. Moses then, in this rebuke next, calls out these Reubenites as well. Verse 12, Moses sent to call Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and they said, we will not come up. He said, come, let's talk about this. We're not coming. In an act of defiance, they refused to present themselves formally before Moses. And now, the bitterness we've seen before is again directed at Moses like a torrent. Verse 13, Is it a small thing that you have brought us up out of the land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness, that you must also make yourself a prince over us? Moreover, you've not brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey, nor given us inheritance of fields and vineyards, will you put out the eyes of these men? Will you not? We will not come up. We're not going to talk to you. We're done. Now there could be a debate here. The land flowing with milk and honey. What is that land? It could be that you didn't take us into the promised land and you called us out, but verse 14 seems to indicate they never got there, which means the land of milk and honey is Egypt. This reflects their rebellion against God. The place where they were enslaved, where God delivers them to come into the land of Canaan, this place flowing with milk and honey, they use that about Egypt. It's an unthankful, bitter rejection of the promised land. And it is an indictment against Moses for failing to lead them there. Will you put out the eyes of these men a figure of speech, Saying, like, we use the figure of speech, pull the wool over someone's eyes. Same thing, you're putting out their eyes. The point is that he is deceiving them. They're not going into the promised land. It's all a deception. Moses' power play. He is really just a joke. His leadership is a colossal failure. And we're not fooled by you anymore. We're not even going to come to you. You're a useless leader. They say. Note back in chapter 15 briefly. We have not looked at this chapter, but the Lord speaks to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land you are to inhabit, which I am giving you, and you offer to the Lord from the herd or from the flock a food offering or a burnt offering or a sacrifice to fulfill a vow or as a freewill offering or at your appointed feast to make a pleasing aroma to the Lord, then he who brings his offering shall offer to the Lord a grain offering and an offering of oil and, verse 5, an offering of wine. Now wait a minute. You're not going to get any of that in the wilderness. There's no grapes. There's no fields of grain out in the wilderness. There's no olive trees out here. Nowhere. What's God saying? You'll be in the land. I am taking you there. I have given you this land. You will enter this land and you will offer these sacrifices of praise with the produce of the land. What are these complainers saying? We're never going to that land. Let's go back to Egypt. That's the land for us. That's the place of goodness, of flowing of milk and honey. It's a rejection of God at every level. And Moses, verse 15, is rightly, I think, then angered. And he complains to the Lord, do not respect their offering. I have not taken one donkey from them, and I've not harmed one of them. What's a donkey deal? That, that's, he's, they're saying, you're an abusive tyrant. And he's said, I haven't even exacted a donkey from them, which is what abusive tyrants do. I like your donkey. I'm lacking one. Give it to me. I'm in power. He said, I haven't even taken one from them. I don't know if it means it, but it might even be saying, I've not even taxed them. I have not harmed one of them and done, you abuse my power in any way with these people. It's interesting that he takes the prayer to God. Oh, the irony in this. You are doing this on purpose. You're deceiving this nation. You're doing it for your own pride and prestige and power. Remember chapter 11? Moses says, I didn't ask for this. God, what is going on with these people? I don't want to lead them. I didn't ask to be in this situation. The burden of this leader was immense. And what he gets from these people is nothing but criticism, harshness. And he goes to God in prayer and says, Lord, it's not true. Don't regard their position and their attack. He then incites Korah, as we've mentioned before. It concludes here in verse 16. Moses said to Korah, Be present, you and all your company before the Lord, you and they and Aaron tomorrow. And let every one of you take his censer and put incense on it. And every one of you bring before the Lord his censer, 250 censers, you also and Aaron, each his censer. So every man took his censer and put fire in them and laid incense on them and stood at the entrance of the tent of meeting with Moses and Aaron. Then Korah assembled all the congregation against them at the entrance of the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the congregation. They really seemed to believe themselves. God will bless this. He will encourage us. He will place us in a position equal to Moses and Aaron. We're Kohathites after all. All are created equal and we're just a little more equal than the rest. But here we are stepping up, seeking this position of power, holding these censers and offering fire before the Lord in an unauthorized way. It's what Nadab and Abihu did in Leviticus chapter 10, and they were struck dead. Moses incites them to this, not to try to trick them, but to say, let's get to the bottom line here and see whom God approves. The third movement then of the narrative is that God judges the rebels and he vindicates his leaders. First, God threatens in verse 20. The Lord spoke to Moses, so his, his glory coming here in verse 19, appearing to the congregation, we're not sure exactly how that looked, whether it was just a, a, a movement of a brilliant light in the glory cloud, but in some way God's presence is made uniquely evident. And it's really an ominous sight, for God has now shown up in the midst of this rebellion So either Moses and Aaron are going down because of their pride and their tyrannical ways, or these who rebel against them are going down as God stands now to adjudicate the situation. Verse 20, And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Separate yourselves from among this congregation that I may consume them in a moment. God does not demonstrate the same patience as Moses writes one commentator, and I think that's right, nor does he need to. As Moses discerned in verse 11, this rebellion was a direct assault against God's will and purpose. It came across as noble, egalitarian, corrective to Moses and Aaron's selfish ambition, but God cuts through the fog and he prepares to swallow them up in judgment. In verse 22, Moses prays, And they fell on their faces, Moses and Aaron, and said, O God, the God of the spirits of all flesh, shall one man sin, and will you be angry with all the congregation? These charges are unfair. They are brutal. But Moses and Aaron do not stand back and say, go ahead and get them. They fall on their face and they pray for them. It's an amazing demonstration of grace. The God of the spirits of all flesh. God is the giver and sustainer of life. It's an appeal to God's life-giving nature and steadfast love. We see here again a teaching on prayer. And that is to take the character of God and to argue from that basis that He would glorify His name. Who is God? How does He relate to this situation? They pray for God's mercy. The prayer, let not one man sin, let not Korah's rebellion be charged to the entire nation. They stand in the place of mediator again, pleading God's mercy for a nation that deserves no mercy. God warns in verse 23. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Okay, then say to the congregation, get away from the dwelling of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. I won't take out the entire nation.'" But Moses then rose and went to Dathan, Abiram, and the elders of Israel, followed him, and he spoke to the congregation, saying, Depart, please, from the tents of these wicked men, and touch nothing of theirs, lest you be swept away with all their sins. It's a horrifying scene. And certainly so when one considers their wives and their children. But when a man refuses to fear God, there is not always a way to protect his family from the fallout. And the people then retreat from them, those that hear the word. They got away, verse 27, from their dwellings. They came out and stood at the door of their tents together with their wives, their sons, and their little ones. Again, just it's heart-wrenching to consider these families standing together against God, but the people retreating from them. Then verse 28, Moses establishes a test. Here it is. He says, Hereby you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works and that it has not been of my own accord. You just put there, the book of Exodus. You didn't have anything to do with choosing this path. He resisted it. But here's the test, verse 29, rather ingenious. He says, if these men die as all men die, if they die natural death, or if they are visited by the fate of all mankind, they die of disease or an accident or a snake bite, if that's how they die out here in the wilderness, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord creates something new, if creates Yahweh at creation, the Hebrew reads and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them, and they go down alive into Sheol, the realm of the dead, then you shall know that these men have despised the Lord. That's what you call a fairly clear test. Real objective. If these rebels die a natural cause of natural causes, I'm a false prophet. If not... May God act. And he does. In verse 31, as judgment falls, as soon as he had finished speaking all these words, the ground under them split apart, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive into the realm of the dead, and the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. And all Israel who were around them fled at the cry. For they said, lest the earth swallow us up. And the fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men offering the incense. God had located His presence with Israel in and over the tabernacle. And to teach His people about sin and purity, and in a sense to protect His own holiness from sinners, He ringed the tabernacle with circles of protection. Those circles of protection designed by God to send the message of our sinfulness and of His holiness. It was a crucial lesson. Israel had to approach God on His terms, and the God of heaven has terms. The Levites, called out from the other 11 tribes, are to circle my tabernacle with the responsibility to serve the tabernacle. Others will go to war. Others will give leadership and guidance uniquely and politically to the rest of the tribes. Others will do other types of work to sustain life. The Levites' primary responsibility will be day by day to attend to this tabernacle and indeed to protect it from anyone who would cross into the line against the will of God. That was their task. God had an order. He had a structure. And kicking against that plan was nothing short of rebelling against God Himself. And it did not end well for those who refused to honor God's Word. There's a human connection here for us, and I want to end with that a little bit later. But first, let's get out of the messy Muddy, confused world of egalitarian conversation that we need to have, that we should have, but that gets so many times off track of what God has said. But let's move past that and look to the bigger picture. It did not end well for those who refuse to honor God's word, and it will end no better for those who reject God's word, His reign, and His way of forgiveness. Rejecting God's salvation plan will lead to final judgment. The earth will not open its mouth to swallow you, but hell will. We're reminded again in this passage that God ordains a priesthood, and we cannot reject God's chosen priest or the sacrifice that God prescribes for the payment of sin. There is a reigning God in heaven, And His will is supreme and absolute. He has a priest. And He has a sacrifice for sinners. And so we see the foreshadowing of God's will in this regard as Moses and Aaron pray as priests standing between God and Israel. Perhaps more on that in a couple of weeks. But here, they pray that God would what? That He would not destroy the many for the sins of one. Now, one is figurative, but this, this one rebellion, and in some sense, this one man who leads it, Korah. But as the story of redemption unfolds, where does it end? It leads us ultimately to the one sinless innocent who dies for the many guilty sinners. It leads us to the sinless Messiah who dies the death of the many, rescuing believers from suffering God's just judgment against their sin it's a twist to the story that god has led us to understand in the old testament but one that we may not grasp if we just ended biblical revelation here in the book of numbers but in this prayer i think there's a tipping of the balances to help us see this idea this sinless messiah who dies the death of the many Rescuing believers from suffering God's judgment upon them. And friend, let me say sincerely if you've not entered into a living relationship with God through the death of Jesus Christ in your place as a sinner, it really does not matter if you want Christ's death to be the answer or not. It does not matter if you think it's a good plan. Take a cue from Korah and the Kohathites and the Reubenites. It doesn't matter if we think it's a good plan. It doesn't matter if we think Jesus dying to pay the penalty of our sin is the only way to God or not. It is. He has spoken and Christ has risen. He's conquered death for his people. You can argue the rest of your life for an egalitarian salvation. And many do. In fact, churches fill up to discuss the egalitarian salvation. That is, the salvation where I save me. I determine that I don't need salvation from anyone outside. Or I determine that in some other way, I have to devise my own plan and find my own way to God. Number 16 points us rather to the two camps. Which the rest of the Bible, and particularly the teachings of Christ, stress over and again that there are two camps under two headships. There are those that will enter into eternity under the head Adam. They will enter in their sin and will stand as their own Savior and fall. The other camp is under the headship of the new Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, whose sacrifice for sin paves the way into the Father's presence, whose resurrection power gives us life in His name, and we will stand. He will hold us fast until that day, and we will stand that day in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And now for believers who have come to that place and know that I have the assurance that I will stand forgiven in His presence because of what Jesus did for me in my place. I assign myself by my will and purpose and desire to His Lordship, to His headship. And He, I realize by His grace, has opened my eyes to see it and to come to Him in saving faith when we have entered into that relationship with the risen Savior, we then willingly live in this life under His Lordship, submissive to His revealed will. And we rejoice to work out in our culture, in our families, in our church, in our society, the truth that all beings are created in the image of God. Man and woman, young and old, rich and poor, people of every tribe and nation and tongue made in the image of God. We rejoice. And we look to Revelation chapter 5 and we see the circling around the throne of all those nations and tribes and tongues and we celebrate the Creator and our oneness in Him. But we also rejoice for our good and for His holiness that God works through structures of authority, through God-ordained leadership to prosper His people. We've seen it in chapter 12, and we see it here again in chapter 16, but it's not difficult to find this in the Bible. It's not difficult to think this way when we see what God has said about the world that He's given us. It's everywhere. He says, for instance, in Romans 13, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. I don't think that's the last word on it. certainly not the last word on it. We see the saints of the New Testament disobeying their government at times when that government demanded that they disobey God. And so there's much to fill in, but here's the direct, simple point. We are to be law-abiding citizens because our government is filled with perfect people. Every law is absolutely just. The government works to perfection. No, no, and not a chance, right? Right? Why do I submit to the governing authorities? Not because they're better than me. Not because they're right. But because there's a God in heaven. And that God in heaven changes the way I live my daily life. They haven't earned that position necessarily. But God has placed them there. And I respect God. So I respect the laws of the land. I pay my taxes. I don't run through stoplights, usually. At least I don't try, right? I walk about this life as a law-abiding citizen because God rules. First Thessalonians, we ask you brothers to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work, not because of their looks, not because of their charisma, not because they do everything not right, not because they're necessarily great leaders, but because of the work that God has assigned to them. And to them, Scripture says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, Not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Or to say it in the context of today, like Moses shepherded Israel. Not demanding, I must have this position, but humbly serving God's people. We see it in Ephesians 5. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. And now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now under an egalitarian impulse, we're supposed to be embarrassed, not read these words in public, And dismiss this as ancient guidance. But when we understand the reigning Savior and what He says on the other side, we can take these things and truly apply them. And realizing there's a lot of complications in doing so. From the other angle, He says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. I think if I would interview a hundred people right outside this building today and show them these verses five twenty-two to 24 and say what do you think no i'm not going to get a lot of happy people right that's bad stuff why because it imposes patriarchal authority it's a it's a means of control It's a means of getting your way. It's a means of ordering things and keeping women under. Why do they say that? Because they don't see this. Love your wives as Christ loved the church. There's a lot more going on than the egalitarian impulse can ever recognize. We can't be knocked off our feet by that, but must respond to the God who is in heaven. It continues When it says, children obey your parents in the Lord. For this is right, honor your father and mother, the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Notice the prosperity, the blessing of God as we obey and honor our parents. And on and on it goes. And we see an example of it here in Numbers chapter 16. God is a God of authority, and as He works with people who are indeed equal in being, He does work through structures of authority and leadership. We recognize this, we see this, we celebrate this, and so we look at the egalitarian impulse in a very different way. Not because we're smarter or see things differently, not because we're conservative but because we're followers of the risen, reigning, and returning Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And whether it's this impulse or a thousand others related to it and like it, we follow Him. And we have that privilege and that calling because we follow that final high priest, Christ, who is the sacrifice for sin, the Lamb of God, and the risen reigning, returning Savior. Father, we bow with thanksgiving for what you have taught us and pray that the spirit of rebellion would not rest upon us or in our hearts as a church, as families, as a congregation, as citizens of this nation. Lord, I don't know if there's anybody here, unless it's because of their youth, that is not often frustrated with our world with the inequalities, with the failings, with the wrong agendas. Lord, how often we're frustrated. But may we see the larger picture and submit to Your Lordship. And may those who know not Christ as Savior yet willingly come to a place of submission to His authority. Because that authority is an authority that flows to us in absolute and perfect and eternal love. We praise you for this grace through Christ. Amen.